For the month of December, we are setting aside our exposition of 1 Peter to examine the prophecies of the Messiah made by the prophet Isaiah over 600 years by the fact. This is one reason why the book of Isaiah is called by many the gospel according to Isaiah. Because between the clear prophecies of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7 to the amazingly precise prophecies of the death of Christ in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is the leading evangelical prophet of the Old Testament. Today we will go in depth as we begin to probe some of these prophecies and understand the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, you have given us this text by divine inspiration, and you have promised us that it will be profitable for us, profitable for doctrine, profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, and profitable for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete fully equipped for every good work. So take this word and press it home to our minds and hearts, deepen our trust in Christ, strengthen our love to him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll keep your copy of God's word open to Isaiah 9 because we have here a profound text. It's a, it's a difficult text because this text jumps time eras, it jumps centuries. It speaks, first of all, of events happening in Isaiah's day, and then it leaps forward 600 years to speak of events happening in the Lord Jesus Christ's day. And so look with me first at verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah prophesies the great light to come. When he speaks of the light coming to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And there in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah, remember, he's prophesying, he's writing as a prediction of what will happen 600 years from now. Now think about 600 years. Try to grasp the breadth of this. If I were to speak to you of something that happened 600 years ago in our nation, Christopher Columbus hadn't even set foot in the New World yet in 1423. And so it's an astounding thing for Isaiah to be talking about events that will happen 600 years hence. So Isaiah is speaking about, if you look at verses 1 and 2, a historical event. The Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. during Isaiah's life and ministry. And Isaiah says, look carefully at the text, verse 1, that God has shown contempt, little esteem for the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two of the ten tribes of Israel that make up the northern kingdom. God has shown, has shown no value but contempt instead by having its inhabitants carted off to Assyria into slavery and replaced by Gentiles. And so these are indeed the people that Isaiah is speaking about in verse 1 and 2. And it would remain that way until the time of our Lord Jesus' birth. These are indeed people who live in the northern kingdom. These are people who walk in great darkness. And so from this time on, from this time up until the incarnation of Jesus, this region of Israel would be held in contempt. Now, I have to tell you, this is not self-pity at all, but I, I grew up being an Okie. Now, I, I know something about living in a region where there is great contempt. My uncle moved from central Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl days to California, and his accent gave him away. 
And so I would ask my Uncle R.L., this was during the days before World War II and then during it, I would say, what was it like when you hopped a freight from Oklahoma to California and then got off and the train in Hollywood? He said, the first thing that happened was I walked into a beer to get a drink, or walked into a bar to get a drink, a beer. And he said, said, as soon as I made my order, everybody gathered around me and said, say it again. And he said, "I'd, I'd like a beer bartender. And I said, you're the dumbest sounding oaky we've ever heard. And he said, what I found was I had to have at least one fight a day when I first got to California because I didn't realize that being an oaky was so demeaning. Well, that was the region of Israel where Jesus grew up, the northern region, Nazareth. Thus, Nathaniel's question posed about Jesus 600 years later in John 146, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so we, when we read upon these people, the read about these people in verses 1 and 2, we're reading about the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the northern kingdom. The opinion that was held by most G- Jews of Jesus' day is stated in John 7.52. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. This was a region of Israel that Israel was embarrassed about. But Isaiah says, the region of thickest spiritual darkness is the place where the light will shine the brightest. Look at verse 1. We are told at the close of it that the people in Galilee of the Gentiles, it's so-called because Assyria had imported all these Gentiles to live there, is where the light will burst forth. And so this prophecy, I want you to see how it's fulfilled. Because you're, you're wanting me to hurry up and get to verse 6 and 7 so we can boast in Christ. But I want you to see how even these prophecies in verse 1 and 2 are fulfilled. And so keep a finger in your Bible in, in Isaiah 9 and look over to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we read beginning in verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John, that is his cousin according to the flesh, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, that's the region of the north of Israel, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now your ears ought to perk out and say, hey, you were just reading the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2, a prophecy about Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Jesus comes to that prophesied place. And look at what Matthew throws in in verse 14. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what we're being told is that by Jesus walking into those regions, the the historic tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the light has finally dawned upon them. Jesus even calls himself, for those of us who are a little slow to pick up on these things, he even helps us understand this prophecy by saying in texts like John 8, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Or again in John 12, where Jesus says, I have come as a light to the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Then look at verse 3 back in our text in Isaiah 9. Isaiah prophesies great joy to come. In Isaiah 9 verse 3, Isaiah writes, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now what Isaiah does is, I hope if you're putting a time signature by these verses, verses 1 and 2 are, are largely speaking of events happening in Isaiah's day that will be fulfilled. Now Isaiah in verse 3 is talking about what happens when Jesus comes. So he scrolls the clock forward quickly over 600 years. Look at verse 3 of his text. He prophesies that great joy is coming. Now, again, in case you need someone to point these things out to you. Now, most of you are far too bright for this, and you've already picked up on it. You've looked at verse 3, and you said, oh, I get what the theme is. It's joy. Look at verse 3 carefully. You've multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as men rejoice. And so all of this is fulfilled that day, that, that evening in Luke chapter 2, when the angel said to the shepherds who were grazing their sheep outside of Bethlehem, I now bring you tidings of great joy. For there is born to you this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In his prophecy, Isaiah says in Isaiah 9 verse 3, that the Lord is going to multiply the nation, and that will be a cause of joy. What does that mean? In verse 3, the Lord is promising to multiply Israel, that she will grow exponentially. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise of a great seed and influence among the nations. It's accomplished the way that Israel is multiplied is by calling the Gentiles to be the seed of Abraham, which involves the engrafting of them into the stock of Israel, the merging of Jew and Gentile into one body. Now look back at our text in Isaiah 9, 4. All of this is set up for the big payload in verse 6 and 7. In verse 4, we are told, the Lord is going to bring liberation and deliverance. Look at the prophecy. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. At one time, the people of Israel had been under a profound burden in Egypt when cruel taskmasters oppressed them. Now in Isaiah's day, they're still in bondage because the yoke of their sins rests upon them. As the beast of burden had a rod with which it was beaten, so Israel had a rod which was being used on it. The rod or the oppressor, God says, is Assyria. But in a far deeper sense, it was the bondage which sin itself had brought. But look at verse 4 carefully in Isaiah 9 verse 4. The victory that's been spoken of will be like the victory over Midian accomplished by Gideon in Judges 7. Human strength in that day didn't prevail. Gideon had to recognize the battle was the Lord's, to be won only by his power. And the victory being spoken of here in Isaiah 9 verse 4 is similar. It will be won by God alone. It will be a spiritual battle, won by an unlikely conqueror. And the victory would consist 
in the, the, the delivery of God's people from all who oppress them. Sin is a, a weighty yoke. It keeps its subjects in bondage. And there's only one who can set men free from that slavery, and that's the sovereign God. The act of delivering men from such bondage is the mighty victory. Now, finally, we're ready to look at verse 6 and 7. Isaiah gives the description of the one to come. He is at the same time, according to verse 6, a child and the mighty God. Our problem is these words are so familiar to us. We've heard them every December of our lives for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. We've heard them sung by the choir. We've heard the Messiah. And so these things cause us to yawn until we step back and think very closely. The one who will be born, according to verse 6, is a child and the mighty God. He is a son who is given. Now, every time, I have to tell you, every time I read the words of verse 6, I immediately hear the echoes of Handel's Messiah. Unto us, a son is given. But I also hear the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he has given us his only begotten son. Now, notice who this son is given to. Look carefully at verse 6. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Who's the us? Sinners in bondage. That's the context of Isaiah 9. Sinners in bondage. That's who this one is given unto. And then at the same time, notice what we're told in verse 6. That this one who will come will be a ruler. A ruler so powerful that the government will be upon his shoulder. This is figurative language used for that, that mantle and the robe that was draped over the shoulders of a king. This one who will come will reign. He will rule. Any attempt to defy his reign will be met with judgment and defeat, we're told in Psalm 2. Christ is the king, and he rules because the Father has installed him. The Father has placed the crown upon his head, and he has the lawful title, king of kings. Now look at how the prophecy is fulfilled. Keep one finger here and keep, turn in your Bible once again to Luke chapter 1. And I want you to see the prophecy that the angel Gabriel, or the word that the angel Gabriel gives to Mary. When he informs her that she is carrying the Messiah in her womb. In Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 33, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, Luke 1 verse 28, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now listen very carefully to the words he uses. The words he uses are straight out of Isaiah 9, 6. He says, he'll be called great and will be called the son of the highest. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, 600 years before. The Lord, Gabriel goes on and says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. This is an exact parallel of Isaiah 9, 7. And he will reign. 
In other words, his kingdom will have no end. This parallels what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9-7. And so what Mary grasped, because she was a young woman who was deeply steeped in the scriptures, we see that when we read Mary's Magnificat, Gabriel is announcing to her, Mary, your boy will be the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. She knew that. She grasped that, understood it. And so look at his reign back in our text in Isaiah 9 verse 7. We are told of this one who will come. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. This one to come won't rule like the recent kings of Israel with immorality and unrighteousness. But his rule will be based on the holiest of standards, justice and righteousness, which is so apt because the rulers of Isaiah's day are so crooked and unrighteous. That seems to be the order of the day. In fact, think of what good news this would be to to the believers in Israel. When Isaiah writes about the rulers of his day, many have pointed to Isaiah and said he is the most contemporary of all prophets. Listen to how Isaiah describes the civil magistrates of his day. In Isaiah 3, 14, Isaiah writes, the Lord will enter into judgment with the princes of his people for you have eaten up their vineyards, the plunder of the poor is in your house. And then again in Isaiah 5, Isaiah writing about the magistrates, the rulers, the princes of his day say, the Lord looks for justice, but behold, all he finds is oppression. Or again in Isaiah 5, Isaiah writing about the magistrates of his day. See if this is not contemporary. Isaiah writes, They justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous. And so when Isaiah writes, prophesies in verse 7 of chapter 9 of this one who will come, he makes sure to emphasize that his rule, his reign will be marked by nothing but judgment and justice. Notice as well what he prophesies about the spread of his kingdom. Look carefully at Isaiah 9 verse 7. He says, there will be no end to the increase of his government. This is in essence the exact same thing that Jesus states when he says in Matthew chapter 16. That the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom, but his kingdom will continue to grow and swell. What's unique about this king? This Jesus, his messianic authority and reign will extend over all heaven and earth. He is even now, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, subduing all his enemies. It must be remembered that Jesus has has been given authority over all kingdoms and nations on earth. Every nation on earth is presently under the dominion of Christ. He's the ruler of the nations. He's even been given the nations as his inheritance, we're told in Psalm 2. In the Old Testament, this present kingdom that Jesus rules over has been described as a stone that grows to fill the whole earth or as a stream of water that steadily increases in depth until it becomes a mighty river. In the New Testament, the progressive growth of Christ's kingdom is described in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven and in terms of the ongoing increasing subjugation of Christ's enemies. Many biblical texts point to conversions on an unprecedented, worldwide scale. The primary promise of the Abrahamic covenant 
was worldwide in scope, declaring that through the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this theme continues in the Psalms as we're told that all the nations of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before the Lord. The Abrahamic promise is brought up again and repeated throughout the prophets where we learn that all nations will go up to the house of the Lord and that there will be a worldwide conversion of the nations. Jesus finally lets his disciples know that he is the subject of all these prophecies, that he will be the one who fulfills this promise of worldwide reign when just before his ascension, he turns to his disciples and tells them, now, because I'm the reigning king, now, because all authority has been given unto me, now, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, you're thinking, well, anybody can prophesy that a king will come. Anybody can say this prediction is going to be fulfilled. Notice what the power is to affect this all. Look carefully at Isaiah 9-7. And this may be my most delightful aspect of this prophecy of Isaiah, is the power to do it. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, we're told of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Well, how do you know that this will come to pass? Look at the final assertion in verse 7. The zeal, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What assurance do we have that Christ's kingdom will be established and grow, that a deliverer will come to Galilee, that he'll be both mighty God and a child, that he'll establish a kingdom that will never end yet increase? What assurance do we have? That Jehovah will muster his zeal to bring it about. The one who promises it will be done will be the one to do it. And so think of this, when you join the omnipotence of God his all-powerfulness, with the zeal of God, the passion. Can you think that the plan of God, which is to increase Christ's government, rule, and kingdom, can you think that the plan of God will be defeated or even slowed down? No, God is zealous. He's passionate about pouring and heaping honor upon his son and thereby expanding his kingdom. Notice what we're told about some of the titles of this one who will come. Look at verse 6 and 7. He is called Wonderful. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, we are told the titles of Jesus and that he'll live up to these glorious titles. Who calls Jesus these names, by the way? Who, is it? <coughs> who gives him <coughs> these names? Philippians 2 says this. God the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. These names weren't just the subject of some worship music poet who was trying to write something that rhymed. These titles were given by the Father to the Son. And the very first title is Wonderful. It's the Hebrew word Pele. It means a marvel, a wonder. How will Christ be wonderful? He'll be wonderful in that he'll be God incarnate, two natures, perfectly human, perfectly divine, joined together in one person, fully God and fully man. What a wonder. There's never been anything before or since like it, nor will there be, 
It's a wonder that you should marvel at. He'll be a wonder in that he will possess every attribute of deity in its fullness. He'll surpass Solomon in wisdom, Samson in strength. He'll surpass all the angels in glory. They will but be his servants. He's a wonder. He's wonderful in his attribute of love. He's so compassionate towards sinners that he will weep over them. He's wonderful in his life, in his supernatural conception. He's a wonder in his brilliant discussions as a 12-year-old with the brightest of temple teachers. He's a wonder in his conquering of Satan in the wilderness. He's a wonder in his many miracles, turning water into wine, raising the dead, healing the sick, calming the storm. He's a wonder in his teaching. Never a man spoke like this man. And he's wonderful in his death. That he should be the giver of life and should die at all is a wonder. But his patience and meekness and taking the cup of bitter suffering from the Father's hand, all the while praying for his enemies and his persecutors. He's wonderful in his resurrection. That even though he's walled up and guarded about by troops, to keep him in. He's wonderful in affecting an earthquake, rolling the stone away, death losing its grip on him. He emerges holding the keys to death and hell. He is a wonder. He's wonderful in his ascension, rising through the clouds as his disciples look on. He's wonderful in his return to judge the world, setting billions before him, separating the sheep from the goats, Wonderful in mercy, wonderful in wrath. <clears throat> but notice in Isaiah 9, verse 6, the next link in that golden chain of his titles. He's wonderful and a counselor. What makes for a good counselor? I share office space with some of the finest counselors in the state of South Carolina. I know a little bit as I listen to them, watch them, hear their brilliant counsel to believers. What makes a good counselor? Well, first of all, you need one who's wise. One of the things that I'm starting to get excited about is this next summer after we complete our study of the book of Joshua in a brief foray into a topical series on angels, we will go into a lengthy series on the life of Solomon. And so I've been immersing myself in Solomon's wisdom, in Ecclesiastes, in Proverbs, in the Song of Solomon. And am astounded at his multifaceted, far-reaching wisdom. Hopefully I'll be able to communicate that just a little bit to you in the series that we do on the life of Solomon, God helping us. But what we are told is this person in Isaiah 9-6, he doesn't have the wisdom of Solomon. His wisdom far exceeds. His, his wisdom is exponentially greater. What makes for a good counselor? First of all, one who is wise. And we are told of him, in Christ is hidden all the treasures. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But to be a good counselor, unlike Solomon, you have to be one whose counsel is not tainted by wickedness. Well, our Lord Jesus Christ has no sin whatsoever, so his counsel is always pure. Never pragmatic, never tinged with sinful motives. His counsel is pure. 
But this counselor now, we see how he far exceeds all other counselors because we are told not only will he listen to you, but he will pray for you. We're told of him in Hebrews 7.25 that he always lives to make intercession for you. But we're told of this counselor. He's one through who is sympathetic, has been through everything you're going through except without sin. How does Christ counsel? Well, first of all, he counsels through his word. If you want to hear his counsel, open your Bible. That is his document of counsel. But he, you should notice how he counsels. He's a caring counselor, not a detached, unconcerned counselor. We're told of him in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we are to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for you. Did you come here today filled with anxiety? Loaded down with a weight of care? Have you understood this is Christ's function as a counselor? You are commanded. You're given an imperative. If you say, I'm really anxious, I'm really nervous, then have you done what Scripture says and cast all your anxiety on him? He's the counselor who can bear all your anxiety for you. And unlike most counselors who think, really? That's why you came to me and are wasting 60 minutes of my time? This is so small. Can't you figure this one out on your own? Not our Jesus. He counsels his people, even on the smallest matters. That's why he tells them, in all your ways, even the smallest, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. And the most glorious thing about this counselor years ago when I was at New Covenant in Anderson as an assistant pastor, we had space in rented offices. And I always look forward to being in the office on Friday afternoons. Because separating my office from that of a psychiatrist was a very thin wall. And this psychiatrist had a patient, a client, who would come in and engage in primal scream therapy. And so I listened for half an hour every Friday. And I just sat there like this as I could hear every word. And so this went on for months, and one day, one Friday afternoon, I heard the person come in and scream at the counselor for 30 minutes, and then walk out the door, high heels clattering. And so after that, I walked out into the hall to get a drink, and I bumped into the psychiatrist. And he looked at me kind of sheepishly, and I, he said, uh, I hope you can't hear my client on Friday at 4 o'clock. I said, I actually can. And he said, well, she's my most demanding client. She's another psychiatrist. That's the one who's screaming at me. Well, think about our counselor. He himself needs no counsel. Unlike all other psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors, we're told this in Romans 11 when the rhetorical question is asked, who's known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? So let me apply this word to us as we walk through Isaiah 9 over the next few Sunday mornings. Let me ask you, first of all, by way of, by way of application, is Christ wonderful to you? Do you worship him fervently because he is the greatest wonder? Or do you give your heart and time and treasure to things and people far less wonderful, far less glorious? 
If he is wonderful and majestic in your sight, then worship him in spirit and truth. The second thing you should notice by way of application, we are told something profound and delightful to the believer. Our God, look at verse 7, tucked away there. Our God, we are told, is a zealous God. We are told that by his zeal, he will perform all that he promises. Zeal comes from the Greek word zeo, which means to boil, to be hot, to be fervent, to be passionate. <clears throat> Our God, we are told in Revelation 3, hates lukewarmness. And he commands zeal. Why? Because he is zealous. He's not moderate or dispassionate <clears throat> about anything. And so when he commands us to be zealous and not lukewarm, he's mandating conformity to his character. And he's zealous here, we are told in Isaiah 9-7, to accomplish his redemptive plan. And when God begins to renew us, guess what character trait he imparts? Zeal. <clears throat> if you're in Christ, you too will be zealous about the accomplishment of this great plan of Christ ruling and reigning over the nations. But I want to focus in very personally on applying this to you. Look very carefully at Isaiah 9-6. And what you see there is the beauty of the gospel. I'm using that phrase, plagiarized from Martin Luther. Luther would say it over and over again, that the beauty of the gospel is in its personal pronouns. Look at verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. All of this is for us. This sounds like it has echoes of the New Testament when Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or that as we read a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Or again, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, think of the personal pronouns. He, Christ, died for our sins. Or what Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we, us, we have peace with God. This month, as you celebrate the Incarnation, oh, I pray that it would be with the clear understanding and joy that Jesus has established his kingdom and is ruling and reigning now as the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bring to you deep thanksgiving for making prophetic promises hundreds of years before the fact and then keeping and fulfilling every one of them. How we praise you that not one of your words of prophecy falls to the ground unfulfilled, thus strengthening our faith. And so we pray that you take this word and the words to come over the next few weeks that you would take this word of prophecy, deepen our trust in you,